millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and in this episode we have Dr. Yannick Velou-Lepage, an expert on the history of terrorism. As we approach the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and we commemorate those who died in the devastating terrorist attacks on New York, I wanted to run a series of episodes that put 9-11 into its appropriate historical context. In this episode, Yannick provides some broader context to 9-11 by taking us through the history of politically motivated and terrorist hijackings of planes from Peru in the 1930s through to criminal hijackings and the rise of the first terrorist hijackings in the 1960s. So here he is, Yannick Velou-Lepage on the history of hijackings. Hi, Yannick. Thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Good, good. No, no. Our pleasure. Absolutely. Now, it is almost 20 years since those horrendous seismic events of 9-11. 9-11-2001, when on that blue sky morning in downtown New York, as people were going to work in the first and the second World Trade Center, they were hit by those flights. Those flights that have been hijacked by terrorists to send a message to the United States. You can speculate on what that message was. Some say it was for America's wars against Muslim peoples. Some say it was because of the United States troop presence in Saudi Arabia. You could even take it back to potentially influence in Afghanistan and everywhere else around the world. But it was the way in which those terrorist attacks were undertaken, that hijacking of civil aircraft to really make that statement piece that I think has been a stain on our common memory. Now, you are an expert in the history of terrorist hijackings. So perhaps you could take us back through this history. What was the first terrorist hijacking of an aeroplane and what were the motivations behind it? So if I can rephrase the question a bit, I'm going to start talking about some of the first cases of politically motivated hijacking. I think it's easier to remove this label of terrorism when we're looking at the long evolution of this particular technique. But the first instances occurs during a revolution in Peru in 1931. And in order to kind of understand where this emergent comes from, it's important to understand 
the role of airplanes in the economic development of the Andes and of Peru during this period. So most of the airplanes in Peru were mail planes that were used in order to kind of extend the reach of the government through mail delivery. And they were owned by Panagra, which is now Pan Am. And there was a particular clause within the contract between the Peruvian government and Panagra, which meant that in a case of national emergency, which was unspecified, the government could commandeer these airplanes and use them as they saw fit generally as kind of an extension of their military might. And let's not forget that by 1931, the role of airplanes within military combat was already well established and well understood. So during this revolution, we have planes that are being commandeered by the government and they're being used for a variety of purposes. But the largest one is propaganda. These planes are sent with Pan Am pilots or Panagra pilots over rebel-held territory. And essentially, there's cases of them dropping ordinance, but really what these seem to be mostly dropping is pro-governmental propaganda. Eventually, one of these airplanes lands in a field and is captured. The pilot is taken and he's put on trial. And this is a trial that's quite mediatized. But that's not the emergence of hijacking. What seem to have come to this is that it gave an idea to the rebels. The next time they managed to capture an airfield, rather than taking the pilot and putting him on trial and court-martialing him for his participation in uh, kind of quelling the uprising, they forced the pilot to refuel the plane, they add their own propaganda on the plane, and they forced the pilot to fly over Lima and drop pro-revolutionary pamphlets on the capital. And this is very interesting because what we start seeing is that the emergence of this new technique is really borrowed from the state's use of political violence. And this is a theme that I come back to on several occasions in my book, and we have several instances of this. But what I think is actually more interesting than this first episode is what happens afterwards. So the revolution is successful and the government is overthrown. And in the aftermath of this, we now have these counter-revolutionaries that are trying to annul the revolution and reinstate the former prime minister. And they start trying to capture a plane as well in order to do these propaganda drops. But what's quite interesting is the newly instated government, having recognized the awesome power of these hijacked planes, essentially starts instituting a bunch of countermeasures. So planes carry extra fuels, but also most importantly, they radio the airfields prior to landing in order to ensure that the airfields are still under government control. And this is the very small emergence of airplane hijacking. It lasts for about a year or so, and then it mostly disappears for nearly 20 years before it reemerges somewhere else. That's fascinating. So this is like before text blasts or before mass messages across social media and getting your political point out there. This is the first way to get your message across all at once across a vast area. This is almost like your first text blast, isn't it? To try and sway and subvert the public opinion. Yes. And it's also, I think, a clear effort of trying to control territory in a kind of 3D setting. So it's no longer about having 
control of the land. It's also having control of the air. And this is a theme that we come back to even today. You know, several scholars, including my colleague Emile Archambault at Durham University, have spent a lot of time looking at, for example, the Islamic State use of drones and, more interestingly, the wider symbolic appeal of this. So that's another example of a non-state actor, a kind of rebel group that takes on the same technologies that are used as the nation state to use them for their own propaganda purposes. Yeah, absolutely. And we have several more of these. One of the one I generally like to go back to is the re-emergence of the orange jumpsuit in ISIS execution videos. These orange jumpsuits, which are reminiscent of the orange jumpsuit that we're all too familiar with that were used on the detainee in the Guantanamo detention camps. And, and we have several more instances of this. We have Operation GIF, which hopefully we'll have a chance to, to talk about when we start talking about Palestinian hijacking later on. But before we get to Palestinian hijacking, you said it was 20, 30 years after the cases in Peru. So that's the 19. 19- 30s. Take us through to the 1960s. When do we see hijacking emerge there? So we start seeing hijacking emerging again during the Cuban Revolution. And again, this is done as a means of countering government power. So it starts off, I think, largely as a way of bringing arms from the United States to Castro's troops. And This is done through several different means, smuggling by boat, also smuggling on airplanes, just standard commercial airplanes. But there's several cases of airplanes being hijacked as they are smuggling these weapons. And one of these cases is particularly tragic. It leads to death of several passengers when the plane isn't able to land in this makeshift airfield that was created under the command of Raul Castro, who was tasked with this kind of wide airplane hijacking program. But many commentators of the time actually recognized that a large part of Castro's program of hijacking, which ended up limiting the amount of flights that Air Cubana was doing across Cuba, could be seen as kind of a precursor to the fall of the Batista regime. So by the time of the fall of the Batista regime, nearly three quarters of all domestically scheduled flights in Cuba had been canceled over fears of hijacking or attacks against Air Cubano. And this again is very helpful because it helps us in some ways foreshadows what happens with the Palestinians in the late 1960s, early 70s. And this is really the awesome power of the airplane as a symbolic vehicle. Let's not forget that in the early days of aviation, aviation is heavily subsidized by the state. So we've got these flag flag carriers, which are subsidized by state funding. Air Cubana had very close ties with the uh, Batiste government, just like, you know, Air France or Air Canada are were seen as a form of kind of technological ambassadors. So by attacking the flag carriers, you're attacking the states by proxy. And this is one of the reasons why Cuban revolutionaries set their sights on these planes. What's also quite interesting is what happens almost immediately in the aftermath of this. So one day after the fall of the Batista regime, we have the first 
hijacking going the other way. So we have the first hijacking in Cuba, which is conducted by a group of generals, and there's trying to get to Miami in order to seek exile. And then this is a pattern that we see kind of reoccurring immediately in the aftermath is sympathizers to the Batista regime hijacking planes in order to get themselves and their families out of Cuba. Oh, wow, that's astonishing. So from there being a almost power and prestige to being able to take down the nation's flag-carrying aircraft and ground them for fear of hijacking through that same vehicle being an escape tool for those same people that have been bought down. There's a lot of politics in these airplanes. Yes, and what's interesting is that at the same time, we have people in the Soviet Union in various territory under Soviet control hijacking planes in order to flee the Soviet Union's. And the American reaction to this is quite positive. So hijackings are encouraged. We have several memorandums from the State Department that essentially informs various bodies, including Radio Free Europe, on how to talk about hijackings, on how these hijackings can be used as a beacon to inspire others to seek a freedom away from what is seen as the oppression that comes with with communism. We have cases of, in fact, one of the airplane being used in parades in Germany in order to raise funds, freedom dollars for Radio Free Europe's mission and so on. And and this isn't only limited to airplanes. We see the same thing with many other vehicles that were used in order to escape uh, the Soviet Union, but also what some scholars have referred to as like Cold War pageantry. So all the effort in order to dramatize the stories of these these Soviet defectors. And as part of this, we start seeing this kind of overt encouragement for hijacking coming out of the United States as a way of striking a hard blow to the Soviet Union. What's also interesting is the Soviet Union is actually the first nation to institute the use of sky marshals on their planes in order to try to stop defectors. They also bring in essentially a group of various measures in order to stop pilots from trying to divert their own planes to the West. Wow, so there's a real propaganda element that comes with the hijacking of these planes. Well, one that's really kind of bought up by the West during the Cold War. Is it this same propaganda element that inspires the Palestinian hijackings? So the Palestinian hijacking starts the first one in 1968. And it's LL 426. Many scholars have kind of referred this as like the birth of terrorist hijacking. I think while it's definitely a very salient event and it's gotten a great deal of media attention, in fact, it led to the creation of the field of terrorism studies. As we've said, there is this long history prior to this. So this is where I, I try to be careful with this label of, you know, this was the first terrorist hijacking or not. Now, the inspiration from this, it's hard to essentially pinpoint the reasoning, but some of the later texts by George Boss, a member of the PFLP, seems to indicate that there was an awareness that this would be a highly visible technique, that it would gain world attention. So take us through the organization itself and what they aim to get out of these hijacking incidences. So The nature of Palestinian hijacking seems to shift throughout its history. 
both in terms of tactics, but largely in response to these really countermeasures, which are quite rapid. So there's a couple of things that I think are quite worth highlighting. So after the first hijacking, we started seeing several other instances that occur soon in the aftermath. But what we also start seeing is some very severe countermeasures that are instituted. One of them is the use of sky marshals on the planes itself. So plainclothes police officers or security personnel are essentially embedded with the passengers with the hopes of hijacking, and there is some success to that. We also start seeing the introduction of profiling at various stages before boarding the plane. This includes training the baggage reception desk staff to identify various red flags, if you will, the ticket counter individuals, the pilots themselves, and the rest of the crew. Now, what I think is quite fascinating is how quickly the PFLP adapts to this. So one of the changes we see is a change by some splinters of the PFLP to essentially kind of give up hijacking and instead start favoring the use of airplane bombings. That's a whole other story there. Uh, there's a few footnotes for those that are interested in that particular genealogy in, in the book itself. Uh, the other kind of tactical innovation that we see on the part of the PFLP is starting to use foreign operatives with the hopes that they will be able to kind of slip by. They won't display the same type of red flags that might lead to them being uncovered. One of the things I also find particularly fascinating with this is how the hijackings themselves progress in violence. And I think in many ways, this is directly linked to the state reaction. So after the first hijacking of Al-426, Israel engages in what it calls Operation Gift. And Operation Gift is essentially an act of retribution. There is an Israeli commando which is sent to Brut Airport and they are tasked with identifying planes that are owned by Arab states and destroying these planes. These planes are destroyed on the tarmac while they're empty. I think it's 14 planes if memory serves me right. And it actually ends up being one of the largest insurance claim that's ever filed with Lloyds of London. Now the idea here was to put a financial penalty on Arab states that were seen as supporting the PFLP. Now, what I find very fascinating is that immediately after this, the PFLP changes its MO. After planes are successfully hijacked, they are destroyed by the PFLP. So passengers are removed from the plane and then the plane themselves are destroyed. And originally in a very kind of rudimentary fashion, shooting into the dashboard, and then later in much more grandiose fashion, such as the Dawson Fields hijacking, where, where four of those planes are destroyed while the TV crews are filming and probably leads to some of the most striking images of pre-9-11 terrorism. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Imagine a millennium that laid the foundations for the modern world as we know it today, when kingdoms were forged, languages shaped, cultures created. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and on Gone Medieval, my co-host Matt Lewis and I will tell you just why the so-called Dark Ages really weren't that dark after all. Subscribe to Gone Medieval by History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. So what's the intent here then? Because this isn't a monetary kind of hijacking. They're not wanting to get paid to release the planes by this point. Is it more that political terroristic spectacle? Well, they do in some case take financial or essentially extort money from airlines. In one particular hijacking, it is believed that a large financial ransom was paid by Lufthansa in order to secure the release of the plane undamaged. And this money was believed to have later been used in order to fund the Lloyd Airport massacre that was committed by the Japanese Red Army, which had links with the PSLP. Well, you have to tell us a little bit about the Lloyd Airport massacre because you can't mention that without providing some of the details. It's one of the most bizarre but also history-changing moments because of the people that it ends up killing, right? Yeah, so it's one of these instances of Palestinian terrorism where there is that transnational connection. So there's a group of individuals that land in Israel, Lloyd Airport, under the cover of being Japanese musicians. Then in the baggage collection area, they open their music case and then recover firearms and grenades that they had successfully hidden, having been able to kind of bypass these profiling measures. And they unleash absolute devastation on fellow travelers that were waiting at the uh, baggage carousel. And this, along with the Munich Olympic massacre in 1972, are some of the kind of deadlier manifestation of this Palestinian political violence in the early 1970s. 
the hijackings that were committed by the PFLP were the goal wasn't all financial. The finance was a mean of continuing the Palestinian struggle. So these hijackings were essentially part of a wider campaign by, by the PFLP for self-affirmation. And a large part of the demands that were generally demanded was the release of political prisoners. And this is a theme that kind of comes back over and over again. Oh, wow. So there's many reasons to hijack a plane at this period in time. Yes, absolutely. Now, take us a little bit further through this history. If there's one thing I know about terrorists is that they learn from or sometimes cooperate with criminal gangs, and criminal gangs do the same. They learn from terrorist tactics. So how do criminals innovate this practice through history? Yeah, so one of the things I often say is that money seems to be a better motivator for innovation than ideology. And it's not uncommon that there's a bit of a lag between the emergence of a new technique that is used by, by criminals or also by lobbyists before it is adopted by terrorists or by politically motivated individuals. And this is what I call the crime terror innovative nexus. Now, in order to kind of demonstrate this point, I think quite powerfully, I think it's worth going back to drones. So we're now talking about the use of drones by non-state actors, uh, groups like, like Hamas, like Hezbollah, like the Islamic State have incorporated drones into their arsenal. But what's quite interesting is that criminals have been using drones to bring drugs, pornography, weapons into prison for over 20 years. We're having discussions about how drones can be weaponized, and we know that hobbyists, people that don't have any malicious or criminal intent, have weaponized drones 10 years ago. It doesn't take a very long time on YouTube to find videos of people having found the ways to mount machine guns, flamethrowers, rocket launchers onto commercial drones. And we see something quite similar as well with hijacking. Quite early on, we start seeing individuals that are solely after financial reward start to hijack planes in order to try to get money from various airlines. And I think one of the most common cases of that is D.B. Cooper, that most of your listeners will be aware of because he's been almost mystified in pop culture. But we have earlier instances, and this is one of the really interesting things for me is the case of Joseph Sini, who essentially tried to do a D.B. Cooper-like hijacking six days before D.B. Cooper succeeded with his gambit. So we can see that very early on, you have these individuals that are trying to find a way to get paid are coming up with various schemes on how to hijack a plane and how to get away from it by jumping out of the plane itself. In the case of Joseph Cini, he was foiled by a parachute package that was simply tied to strongly he had hijacked the plane using an axe and gave the axe to the co-pilot in order to concentrate on undoing his parachute bag at which point the co-pilot disarmed him quite forcefully uh, but we have several cases of that and what's really interesting is this kind of diffusion so immediately after the db cooper case which received so much attention we start seeing copycats, other individuals trying to do the same thing. And one of my favorite examples of this kind of copycat nature of this criminal hijacking has to do with, I would say, the inspiration, not coming from a previous criminal, but actually coming from a movie. 
Doomsday Flight. And the premise of that particular movie is that there's a phone call and that is placed to an airline saying that there's a bomb in a particular plane. And if the plane reduces an altitude, the bomb will simply detonate. And the person engaging in this extortion will only give the location of the bomb if he's provided with a certain amount of money. Now, what's really interesting is that we actually start seeing a series of calls or of extortion attempts that use the exact same narrative to the point that I found an FAA memo, so a Federal Aviation Administration memo that was sent to various TV channels in the United States, essentially begging them to stop showing this movie because they saw a correlation between screening of this movie and similar extortion attempts. Oh, wow. This is like, it's kind of a mix of, well, every Keanu Reeves speed film mixed in with airplane hijackings. I think that was an element to that as well, wasn't there? If you go below a certain speed, you blow up. Yeah, that's exactly it. And in fact, what's very interesting is that we have actually one case. The altitude that was given turned out to be essentially less than the altitude at which the airport in Denver is. So what the FAA started doing is they started redirecting planes to Denver where the plane could land without reaching that altitude threshold. So this was one of the ways that they sought to kind of mitigate this. And what was very interesting is that they actually managed to kind of keep that little trick a secret, knowing full well that if that became public knowledge, then would-be extortionists would adapt. Um, So there's definitely a lesson here about the role of responsible media and also about information sharing in the aftermath of terrorist attack or uh, extortion attempts such as that one. And for those who don't know or are curious, D.B. Cooper is the name for the anonymous man who in 1971 hijacked a plane between Portland and Seattle and collected, was it $200,000 of ransom and then jumped out of the plane over Washington with a parachute and was never found. Yes, and his identity still remains a mystery. Several individuals have come forward in recent years claiming that their their father, their late husband, their uncle was D.B. Cooper. But it still remains quite a mystery. And to make the mystery even kind of more grandiose, the money was never recovered or most of the money was never recovered. Some of it was found in a stream several years ago because the bills were all recorded by the FBI and the FBI keeps an eye out for these bills. So if you come across 200,000 American dollars hidden in your grandfather's basement, you might want to be careful where you spend that money because if it is the D.B. Cooper money, people will come asking questions. That is a very good tip, Yannick. Now, bring us through to aeroplanes as weapons of mass destruction. Perhaps probably the way in which most of us nowadays would resonate with an aeroplane hijacking, like I say, off the back of those tragic events of 9-11. Yeah, so this is interesting because that makes for a really nice segue with our conversation about criminals because we start seeing some of the early cases of aeroplanes being used in such a way isn't politically motivated. And we have many cases. I think there's about two dozen that I listed in the book, but I think there's a couple of them that are worth mentioning. The first one has to do with three individuals that were wanted by law enforcement. They hijack a plane and they 
perpetrated what ends up being one of the longest hijacking in history, going from the United States to Cuba, back to the United States when Cuban authorities essentially refused them asylum. But what's quite interesting is during that very drawn out process, the airplane flies over the Oak Ridge nuclear facilities and one of the hijackers threatens to fly the plane into the nuclear facility and in his word minimize what Munich looked like in reference to this Munich Olympic massacre that had just occurred. So we see this kind of this influence very very early on or these ideas very very early on in, in practice. We also have several attempts against the White House both by individuals that have kind of broad political grievances. But one of the most interesting cases comes in 1994, where a plane crashes just within the perimeter of the White House. But what's quite interesting is that intelligence analysts first start speculating that this might have been a proof of concept. And we start having the installation of anti-aircraft batteries around the White House in order to kind of stop a similar attack in the future. So, you know, as early as early 1970s, people had thought of crashing planes into buildings and some had sought to do so. And as early as 1994, we had a particular clear case in the United States. Another quite important case is the hijacking of the Air France flight in 1994, whereby an Algerian group, which ended up flying to Marseille, in Marseille, they wanted the plane to be completely reloaded with fuel and it is believed that one of their desires or aim was to crash this fuel-laden plane into the Eiffel Tower. But there was a, a raid against the plane which is captured in quite vivid detail. The newsreel of it is, is quite fascinating. It's definitely worth taking a look at. You can easily find it on YouTube. So that plot never came fully to pass. But in many ways, one of the things I find quite interesting in the 9-11 report is this notion that there was several failures. There were failures of intelligence, there was failures of policy, but also there was a failure of imagination. That one should have been able, not necessarily to predict that such an attack was going to happen, but the eventuality of such an attack should have been seen as within the realm of possibility because we had so many cases of that previously, just not on that scale. And the World Trade Center had been targeted by terrorists previously, of course. Yeah, in 1993, when there was a truck bomb that exploded in one of the sub-basement of the World Trade Center with originally the aim, the idea was to collapse one of the wall, which would then make one of the towers topple onto the second tower. So this idea of kind of total destruction of the World Trade Center wasn't something that hadn't been envisaged previously. So lots of signs, lots of quite obvious hints missed. But before I let you go, you've got to take us back and give us a bit more detail about this plane that crashed into the area around the White House. How big was this plane? Who was flying this? What was their motivation? So there's three kind of incidents that come up that I think are quite important to keep in mind. So the first one is Samuel Beck which is in 1974. So he hijacks a Southern Airway flight and he's actually killed prior to taking off. He's killed by police officers, but it later comes out that he had essentially sent correspondence to, to various individuals detailing his plan 
to kill President Richard Nixon in retribution for the Watergate scandal. And he was going to do this by crashing the plane into the White House itself. Now, a few days later, we had an American U.S. Army private, Robert Pearson, who apparently wanted to demonstrate to his superior that he would be a suitable pilot. So he hijacked a Iroquois helicopter from Fort Meade in, uh, in Maryland and flew it to the White House complex and was eventually brought down by an executive protection service agent who shot at the helicopter with a shotgun and wounded him lightly and eventually he crash landed. But then the, quite the important case is in 1994, September 12th, we've got Frank Cotter, who was dealing with a bunch of personal issues, financial problems, marital problems, legal problems, and he stole a single-engine Cessna and flew it to Washington, D.C. with the intention of crashing it into the White House and ended up crashing it into the White House lawn hitting a tree and then the, the southwest corner of the building itself. There was minimal damage to the building and, and Cotter died as a result of that attempt. Essentially, what's quite interesting as well is that there was not really a lot of motivation that was found for that particular incident. He's not believed to have expressed any desire to injure or kill Bill Clinton, the president at the time. He was known to be unhappy with the presidency itself, but it has been speculated this was a, an attempt to do a sort of grandiose suicide as a result of, of these financial and legal and marital problems that he was uh, dealing with. Wow, it's astonishing to think that uh, so many people have managed to break through the White House defence. It's a little disconcerting, really, but a reminder, again, like I say, 20 years on from 9-11, just how difficult it is as well to defend attacks from the sky, especially when you're not expecting them, especially when they're a surprise and if they are civilian aircraft. Yeah, and quite interestingly, is that the White House was definitely on the list of potential targets for the 9-11 hijackers, but after some reconnaissance, it was decided that the angle required to fly a plane into the White House would be quite difficult, and therefore it is believed that the Capitol was seen as a secondary, uh, the choice was made to target the Capitol instead. Well, Yannick, you've provided us with one hell of a history. You've taken us from the 1930s all the way through the century and gave us that important context around those seminal, pivotal events of September 11th, 2001. Tell us, where can people read more about this topic? So my book, How Terror Evolves, The Emergence and Spread of Terrorist Technique, was published in 2020 by Roman Littlefield. It's available through the publisher's website, but it's also available on Amazon and various other online retailers. There is an e-copy that's also available. And if you're an academic, I strongly recommend that you ask your university to purchase a copy. We also have several pages that are available on Google Books, if you would like a little preview. Yes, I've read this book. I've even endorsed this book. It is a fascinating history. And with that discount code, you've got no excuse to not go and buy it. Thank you so much, Yannick. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.